0: All right, we're going to pray, and uh, then we're going to get started. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now. We want to uh, praise you and thank you for the opportunity that we have to get together with other believers this morning. Uh, We thank you for Ben and Andrea and their willingness to open up their house, even though they're out of town, Um, just giving us a place to uh, experience a lot of comfort as as we meet together this morning. And uh, Father, we just thank you for the time that we're going to have in your word Pray that you would teach us and convict us and challenge us and prepare us for what you're wanting to do through this body of believers moving forward. Um, God, I pray that we would just be submitted to your Holy Spirit as he moves, um, that we would be challenged in the way that we think, and that we would be humble enough to make changes over the coming weeks where we need to make changes. And uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just a couple of. Quick announcements before we get into um, the word this morning. Tyson and and Adam and I are going to meet um, this afternoon to kind of nail down some uh, dates for the rest of the summer. There was confusion this week over whether we were having home groups or not having home groups because um, I lost track of time being in Savannah Sunday and Monday by the time we got back Tuesday. It was kind of hard to get things together for Wednesday and give host families time to go get food and stuff. So that's why we didn't have home groups this week. That's why we decided to do the pool party for everybody that could make it on Friday night. But we're going to try to nail down some stuff today so that we can communicate to you in advance things that are coming up. Um, We've talked about doing a ladies' day at the pool. We've talked about doing a guys' night at uh, Frisbee Golf. Um, So we're wanting to kind of nail down those dates so people have enough advance notice to get off work where they need to. Um, I think we decided for sure that the kids' water day is going to be June 18th here after, um, after we meet together. We'll eat lunch, and then everybody wants to stay on the June 18th. Oh, that's a Saturday. Saturday, yeah. Saturday, June 18th. Have we decided a time for that yet? We'll nail down a time today and send that out um, to let you know. Right now, we're really relying a lot on email communication, so we're encouraging you as much as you can to keep updated with what we're doing through emails. Um, we don't have a phone tree, and most of us don't like the phone tree. So phone trees aren't the best way to communicate a lot of times, um, and we don't have a secretary, so we don't have someone who can just make phone calls all day long to make sure that everybody's aware of what we're doing and what's going on. So we're trying to, to be aware of getting information out to you, but you can do us the favor of, of checking your email Especially if a question comes to your mind, hey, are we having home groups, or hey, what's going on this week, to start by checking your email first, because it may have already been sent and communicated to you, okay? So we'll try to send some stuff out today, even, that'll update you about stuff coming up this week. Um, just as a reminder, giving uh, to Sovereign Hope right now, we've got the box here in the back. Um, if you're planning on staying and eating today, we do have food set aside for that, Um so if you're saying to eat today, we ask that you give some money to help cover the cost of that, as well as the city, which is the online uh, communication network that we're moving towards. Um, it's going to be really helpful, I think, once we all learn how to use it and get it all set up. Um, it's going to really cut down on the miscommunication and the lack of communication if we're all faithful to use that, and we're going to teach you and train you how to use that. We got a deal when we purchased it last week. It was that they were actually running a special where it was 50% off. Um, so the total cost for the setup was $125. Um, we still need $100 of that to cover the cost of that. Ben went ahead and footed the bill up front. So any money you want to give to that today, you can designate towards the city um, or just hand it to me specifically and say, hey, make sure Ben gets this to reimburse his purchase for the city. Um, a couple of other expenses that are coming up. We've got to set up a PO box here in Sonoye so that we can get moving on uh, the nonprofit status for our church. Um, we have to have a address to put down on the documents and stuff. Um, we don't want to put the park address, obviously, because you can't get mail or anything there. Um, so we need to purchase a PO box. It's thirty dollars a year. Um, so we're going to do that this week. So that's an expense coming up that we'll need um, to give towards. And then the nonprofit status, I've got a buddy of mine who's a CPA in Sharpsburg. Um, he's going to handle all the paperwork for our nonprofit status and do it at minimal cost. Um, the initial cost is going to be $100 to legalize our name um, as a church, as a nonprofit organization. So that'll be $100 up front, and then he's going to handle the rest of that cost. So I'll update you probably next week about where we stand with the cost and. Uh, making our church nonprofit that's important because as we start uh, bringing in money to give towards missionaries, we don't want to be taxed on that money, obviously, because you've already been taxed on it. If we don't get a tax ID uh, and move towards that direction, then we're on the hook for paying taxes on everything that you guys give, which decreases the amount of money that we can give towards missions. So um, that's why this process is so important so that we're off the hook with the IRS for any money that we bring in that we're not responsible to pay unnecessary taxes uh, on that. Um, We are going to be meeting the rest of this month here at Ben's House, 10 o'clock. Lunch will be provided every Sunday this month, um, so make plans to eat with us if you want to. Um, If you know that you're not going to be able to, just give us a heads up. Today it's not a big deal because we're doing the sub sandwiches again, so um, it allows Ben and Andrew to purchase stuff. And then be able to reuse it the next week. We're not really cooking and preparing stuff that we end up having to throw away. So um, we will do lunch the rest of the month of June here for anybody that wants to eat. All right, any questions about any of that? Any of those announcements, stuff that's coming up?
1: If we want to write a check instead of, are you just dealing with cash right
0: here? Uh, If you write a check, then you can um, just write it to Ben because a lot of this is reimbursing him. Um, I did talk to Julie at uh, Mount Gilead. She's agreed to start handling um, all of our finances once we get a bank account set up. I talked to the Bank of Coweta here at the um, at the end of Main Street intersecting with 16. Um, they're going to let us open a checking account for free, no fees, nothing like that, once we have a um, tax ID. So we got to get the tax ID first before we can set up the bank account and start putting the money in sovereign hope church's bank account um the convenience of that is that we go pretty close to it on the way home which means we can collect the money count it real quick drop it in the bank on the way home nobody has to take it home nobody has to worry about hanging on to it for too long for accountability purposes we just drop it in a bag and then we pick up the bag later that week andrea can go up and sign for it get it back out with a receipt for our deposit so really trying to cut down on any type of awkward handling of the money
1: are you using Julie just as a? I mean, are you using her truly as a finance secretary. So are we going to have everything forward
0: to her? Yeah, so, um, she. Yeah, she's gonna she's gonna handle our. We're gonna give her a copy of the budget once that's affirmed and and developed and everything, and she's going to pay the bills for us. She's gonna distribute funds where it needs to go, and and really take care of the bulk of that. She's doing the same thing for Ryan's church. We're going to email her what we did deposit. That's kind of the format that Ryan does. Their guy takes it, deposits at the bank, emails Julie, and she'll have access to everything online. So she'll see that deposit come through um, once it clears at the bank. Any other questions about that? Alright, well if you want to take your notes that I gave you, um, we'll dive into uh, God's Word this morning together. Um, I'm excited about what we're going to be teaching and going through over the next few weeks. Um, we, we spent some time going through what is a Healthy Church Member book uh, as just kind of a foundation for the importance of membership and the importance for how membership Uh, is going to function here at this church. And we're planning on giving you further information about that towards the end of the summer as we begin to talk about uh, membership covenant, process for membership, and and what that looks like to be a part of this church, what it'll look like for other people who come in after this initial group of people. Um, So we plan on giving you more information about that coming up. Now we're looking at a foundation foundation for how money is going to be viewed within our church, what we plan to to use our money for within the church context, um, and just really looking at at an introductory foundation today for the role of money in the life of a believer. And once we go through this, that's when we plan on discussing um, in detail the budget of our church. I shared with you in the email this week, my hope and desire is that it's radically different than any church budget that you've ever been a part of. Uh, we want to minimize costs and maximize the effectiveness of every dollar that we that we give of our own resources um, to God's church. And so we're really working hard to, to develop that, to structure that in a way that will bring the maximum amount of glory uh, to God. So today we're starting a series that I've entitled, A Church That Treasures Christ, Not Money. Because what I want to make sure we understand is, We're not starting a series necessarily on money and how you should use your money and how to save money and how to make good financial decisions. Instead, this is more of a series that puts the focus on Christ, the importance that Christ is to have in our life, and how that focus and perspective and priority on Christ shapes our money. So I don't want to do a series on money. I want to do a series on Christ and how Christ affects our money because I don't want money to be the main focus of our, of our discussion. I always want Christ to be the main focus of our discussion and how Christ radically shapes our life on a daily basis. Um, so, this, so this week, specifically, we're looking at how a disciple sees money differently. A disciple sees money differently as he comes to Christ. As a way of introduction, though, before we, before we get in, because this is actually like our first, our first Sunday of legit teaching time. Like, you didn't read a book, you didn't come today to discuss what you've been learning. This is more of our first feeding on God's Word together. And so, I want to to kind of make sure we're all on the same page. My desire, when we begin to discuss uh, this church plant, my desire is that the teaching experience here at Sovereign Hope is radically different than what we're used to. Um radically different like I want it to be drastically different than what uh, your previous church history has looked like coming on a Sunday morning hearing someone teach the word and what that looks like from there on out Um, some specific ways that I want it to be uh, different um, the first thing there in your notes is that I hope that we can move towards Sunday being different than a movie different than a movie When I say different than a movie, um, I'm afraid that a lot of times we view Sunday morning or any time really that we come to hear someone teach from the Word, we view it more like a movie experience than we do a supernatural, God-ordained moment where we hear from the Creator of the universe. We view it like a movie experience. We come... And, and we'll discuss afterwards, eh, I thought that was good, or no, nah, I didn't really think that was that good. Um, we have, like, varying opinions about whether or not the sermon or the teaching time was good or not. And, and we base that on how it made us feel. We base that on whether or not we learned something that appealed to us, maybe. And, and we talk about it maybe for a little bit, and then usually we go off and we forget about it. We're not that concerned about doing something with what we just saw or experienced. When you walk into a movie theater or when you go home in, on a Friday night and rent a movie for that night, you don't, you don't pass out notes like I passed out this morning, right? Like when you walk into a movie theater, you hand them your ticket, they don't hand you a, a set of notes to take on the movie that you're about to watch, right? Because there's no expectation for you to do anything with it after you leave. The concern for the movie is to entertain you for, for a set amount of time. To maybe generate some discussion for you to go tell somebody else about it. But then long term, like they're not really that concerned whether or not you remember stuff from the movie. In fact, they might prefer that you forget some of it so you'll watch it again. My desire for us, every time we teach, every time we get together to study God's word, is that we approach it differently than a movie. We approach it differently than a movie. Instead, secondly, we do something with the teaching. We do something with the teaching. My prayer and my hope is that we form an environment where we hold each other accountable to being doers of the word and not hearers only. Like I want, and this may be uncomfortable at first, I want this to be the type of church family where you're confronted with whether or not you're just hearing the word and you're not doing anything with it. Like, I want it to be almost an uncomfortable situation if you're the one who's not doing something with the word. Too often in churches, it's uncomfortable when someone actually does want to do something with the word. When someone does want to respond, because they're the only one. They're the only one kind of stepping out, and they're viewed as radical or crazy because they're reading stuff in the New Testament and saying, hey, we're supposed to be doing this as a church. And everybody else is just kind of like, dude, chill out. Like um, like you're getting a little, little out of hand here. Like I want the experience here for us is that we come we come weekly to hear from the word. And, and the plan is to do something with it. The plan is to do something with it. I don't want to be guilty of, of learning it for a little bit of time and then forgetting it. I mean, for some of you guys, I've taught you for four years. I've taught you for four years, and there's stuff that I've forgotten that we learned. Stuff that I taught you, I've forgotten, because we didn't do a whole lot with it. You know, we went through series, and it was like, man, what a great series. That was so challenging. That was so convicting. We learned so much. And then today, like, we're not really doing anything tangible with what we learned two years ago. For this church, I want us to be able to look back and say, man, two years ago we learned about that and we're still doing something with what we learned two years ago today. I can show you tangible things in our church that have been radically shaped by something we learned two years ago. I want to do something. I want to do something with what we're learning and teaching. God's word is too powerful. It's too convicting to not do something with it. And I realized this week, I spend way too much time studying to prepare to teach for us not to do something with it. If we're not going to do something with it, then I don't need to spend as much time as I do studying and preparing to teach you guys. I want us to commit to say, hey, if the word says we need to do something, we got to start doing it. And that's why we're trying to structure everything that we do around what we study on Sunday mornings. We're not looking to do extra studies, extra small group studies, all this extra stuff to where you're like, at the end of the week, man, I learned five different things this week. I don't even know how to, where to start to apply some of this stuff. Because I went to Sunday school, and then I went to Sunday morning church, Sunday night church, and Wednesday Bible study, and then I met for a small group, and I've, I've got all kinds of stuff going through my head, and none of it's consistent, none of it goes together. We were in five, six different books of the Bible this week. We're trying to simplify everything. We're trying to study one thing together and letting it radically change our life. I want it to be different than a movie. I want us to do something with it. And then thirdly, thirdly, disciple making is the goal. Disciple making is the goal. When you look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, the Great Commission is that we're supposed to go and make disciples. Some people want to separate salvation and being a disciple as two different things. That, that Jesus makes an offer, hey, come get saved, and then makes a separate offer that says, once you're saved, if you're interested, we're having a discipleship sign up over here, and you can be a disciple if you want to be. But if you don't want to be, you can just get saved, and that's cool, like you won't go to hell. But for the really elite Christian, we're looking for people to be disciples. You don't see that option given in Scripture. Jesus doesn't seem to... to to separate salvation and discipleship. He just calls people to come be a disciple, and he tells us to go make disciples. So it's it's not optional for you as a Christian to be a disciple. It's not optional for me to not make disciples. So as we teach on Sunday morning or whatever time we're getting together to, to study, Disciple making has to be the goal. It starts with you coming and saying, I want to be a disciple. I want to learn everything that Jesus has commanded me to do. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you to do. So it starts with us coming, coming and saying, I need to learn. I need to be a disciple so that I can reproduce myself as a disciple into somebody else. That's got to be our goal. If it's not, then we're just, we're just coming to watch a movie on Sunday mornings. And the movie is me to get up here. Movie is me getting up here and just talking. I want us to come with a ten of ears that everything that we talk about on Sunday morning is important. I'm sure Chris experiences this and Melissa experiences this. Um, there's times when I'm when I'm lecturing at, at school and I'll be talking and I'll get a student that raises their hand and says, uh, "Coach Adam, is this going to be on the test?" Well, no, no, it's not going to be on the test. And you see like a totally different reaction. Well, it's not going to be on the test. Like, I'm not going to write this down. You know, like, like, I'm not really that concerned about what you're saying if I'm not going to be tested over it. Or sometimes I'll be talking and I'll say, hey, you guys really need to know this. And you'll see people like, oh, oh, I'll pick up my pencil and like start writing because I need to know what we're talking about now. I want us to come with the perspective that we need to know what we're talking about on a Sunday morning. That's why I want to be faithful to provide you notes, consistent notes every week that look like this. So that if you want to, um, hopefully I'm going to see about getting a hole puncher that punches the holes in a half sheet. Um, I lined it up in my hole puncher this morning. and I was like, well, that ain't going to work. It's for a full sheet. Uh, if you want to get a notebook, uh, a half-page notebook with three rings in it, you can put those in and, and keep them and be able to go back to them and refer to them. You may be the type that, that does better just taking your own notes. And you may want to buy a notebook to bring every time we get together to teach. And you want to take your own notes Either way is fine. We've discussed whether or not it's worth the financial investment to print these things every week. Um, As we find out who wants them and who doesn't want them, we'll be able to cut costs a little bit that way. But we want to communicate to you that what's happening on a Sunday morning is important enough for you to take notes on it. Because it's not important because I'm saying it. It's important because you need to teach it to somebody. If you're going to be faithful to the Great Commission, you've got to reteach this to somebody at some point. And it starts with you saying, I need to know this stuff. In my notes, I put down that um, I don't know that that I can honestly say that I've made a disciple yet. Um, Scripture says we're supposed to invest our lives into people, and we're to teach them everything that Christ commands them to do. I don't think that I've, I've... produced a disciple yet that I'm confident that I can say this person's ready to go and and make other disciples. Some of you guys, I've been, in a sense, discipling for four years. And part of what led me to want to be a part of this church plant is that I don't think we're done yet. I want to get everybody in this room to the point where you're able to go and make disciples. My hope and desire is that within the next two, three years... We send half of you guys to the mission field to go and make disciples in a different context. I want us to see this as a as a serious time. Like we're we're making disciples when we come to teach with the purpose of sending people out and making more disciples. Okay, so just as a way of introduction, I want us to change the the, the perspective that we put on a Sunday morning teaching time to a level of high importance. High importance. That we want to get what we're talking about and put it into our life, put it into action. Alright, here, did you know that 15% of everything Christ said relates to the topic of money? This is more than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. I want you to take just a few minutes, I want you to flip your notes over on the back, and I want you to do your best to write out 10 statements that you believe Scripture teaches about money. If Jesus taught about it so much, and we're just talking about what Jesus teaches not about what the rest of Scripture teaches, when you take that into account, the Bible has a lot to say about money and how a believer should use his money. So I want you to think through what you've been taught in the past, maybe just um, opinions that you have based on what you've heard. If you had to write 10 statements out, 10 statements about what Scripture has to say about money, what would you write? You might write, hey, I think we're supposed to give 10% to the local church. You might say, I think that we should not pay pastors a salary. Um, You might would say, "Um, I believe that uh, a Christian should sell, sell everything they own and give it to the poor. Just think through your understanding of what the Bible says about money and write out as much as you can, with 10 being the goal, statements that you believe Scripture says about money and possessions. Alright, let's talk about these for just a minute. You probably didn't have time to write ten. Um, that's why we're giving you the notes. So take a moment you can do it at home. Uh, anybody want to share something they wrote down, something that they believe scripture has to say about money, possessions in the life of a believer. Give your money to those in
1: need.
0: Okay, give your money to people that, that are in need. Anybody else? Give joyfully. All right, give joyfully. An attitude of how we give. You can't serve both God and money. Okay, you can't serve both God and money. Anybody else? Okay, let your character be free from the love of money. Anybody else? What does Scripture teach about money? be good stewards of what God has given us. Give generously. We shouldn't think of it as our own All right, we don't think of it as our own money, but as God's money that he's entrusted to us, giving us minds to uh to think responsibly about how to use that money. And we see in passages in scripture where he holds people accountable for whether they are responsible with what he gives or irresponsible.
1: Other thoughts on what scripture
0: has to say about money?
1: Those who give out of their need will be blessed
0: even more. Okay, those that give out of their uh, give to those in need will, will be blessed even more than that?
1: No, those who give that don't the lady who has a money, those who give out of their own
0: need. Those that give out of their own need.
1: Their own yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Other thoughts? What does Scripture say about money? Can't take it with you. you. That is true. All
1: right.
0: Hopefully you'll, you'll hang on to this and you can evaluate what you wrote down and the accuracy of it over the coming weeks. Did you write down things that Scripture actually does say? Is that what Scripture presents? Um Hopefully we'll be able to challenge you in things that maybe you weren't aware that Scripture had to say about uh, a believer and his use of money. And you notes there, a disciple sees money differently. If you can't let go of money, you can't come to Christ. We see this picture in Scripture. If you can't let go of money, you can't... <coughs> Come to Christ. The picture that we're given here is in in Luke chapter 18. I'll start reading in verse 18. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. Do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. If you back up in in, uh, this passage in Luke 18, you see another uh, teaching uh, tool that, that Jesus uses when he shares a parable. And he talks about a, a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple to pray. We're probably familiar with that, with that account where the Pharisee comes and prays to God and says, God, I'm, I, I want to thank you that I'm not like other people. Like, recognize my self-righteousness. Recognize my good works. Recognize my obedience to the law. Um, I, I'm bringing that to offer to you. We see the tax collector who, who beats his chest and says, be merciful to me, God, a sinner. Two different perspectives. One who comes and says, here I am with all my self-righteousness, with my good works. The other one who comes and says, I don't have any good works to offer you. I, I, I'm begging for mercy. This rich guy comes with a, with a similar idea, similar perspective. He comes and says, Jesus, what do I need to do for eternal life? Uh, I, I need some type of checklist. Give me, give me some things to accomplish so that I can get this behind me in a sense. Like, give me something so I can accomplish this. And then get back to business as usual the way that I want to do business. And Jesus challenges him with the law. And there's no possible way this guy has kept all these commands. But he's blinded to his own self-righteousness. And he says, yeah, I've kept all that. And then Jesus challenges him and says, okay, well, great. Sell everything and come follow me. And we're told that the rich man walks away sorrowful. He walks away sorrowful because he had a lot. He He had a lot of wealth. He had a lot of money. We don't see Jesus chase him down and try to change his mind, try to talk him into really giving away stuff. He doesn't run after him and say, hey, I was just theoretically saying that you should be willing to do it. I'm not really actually asking you to give everything away. It's just a teaching tool that I use. He just lets him go. He just lets him walk away. And he looks at his disciples and says, it's really hard for somebody who has a lot of money to come follow me. It's extremely hard. And he, he implies that it's impossible. He implies that it's impossible to, to have a lot of money and come to Christ. Because his disciples respond and say, well, who can, get, who can get saved? Who can get saved if that's the case? And Jesus makes the statement and he says, what's impossible with man is very possible with God. An omnipotent God, an all-powerful God, whose Holy Spirit can come and can convict the most rich person this world has ever known. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, convicts that man to turn his back on wealth in this world to follow Christ for the world to come. It's only through the power of God that that's possible. A rich man would never on his own just say, you know what, I'm going to actually get rid of this money. It's God opening his eyes, regeneration, opening his eyes spiritually, And and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, what I have is not important to me anymore. But we see this picture in Scripture of when someone comes to Christ, a radical change of perspective about money happens. Over and over again in Scripture, people that don't come to Christ don't come for two reasons. There's two reasons people don't come to Christ in the New Testament. You see it over and over and over again. Either they're content with their own godliness, they're self-righteous like the Pharisees, they're content with their own godliness, or they're in love with this world. It's the two reasons people don't come to Christ. They're content with their own godliness. It's not that they don't see themselves as a sinner necessarily. I've talked with people, I've shared the gospel with people who will admit to me that they're a sinner But they can't go so far as to say that they're a bad person, that they're a wicked person who's not capable of doing good. They'll admit that they sin sometimes, but they'll also confess that they think they're good enough to to work beyond that sin. People in the New Testament don't come to Christ because they're content with their godliness or they're in love with money. You need to know that as you share the gospel, that that's the two things that you're up against as you share Christ with people. That you're having to overcome someone's self-righteousness and their love for the world. Those are the two obstacles that keep people from coming to Christ. And we see this guy turn his back and say, no, thank you. I I love this world too much. Why why is that the case? Why is it impossible in this context here, the, the wording that Jesus uses, why is he alluding to the fact that it is impossible for a rich man to be saved? Why is it so hard for a rich man to come to Christ? Thoughts? Okay, but why can't you love God and man together? Or God and money together? Is money evil? Does Scripture say that? No. So it's not just the possession of money that makes it virtually impossible to come to Christ. What about money makes it almost impossible to come to Christ? Okay, it's a powerful thing. It becomes an idol, but why? Because you can get everything you want with it, in a sense. The temptation to live... For the flesh, the temptation to live in sin as opposed to living in obedience to Christ is a much greater temptation for a rich man because he can afford to sin. I mean, think about it. His temptation to sin is greater because he can afford to go out and buy sin whenever he wants to. He can afford the things of this world. So it's a much greater temptation for him to give up sin because he can have sin whenever he wants it. It's a much greater temptation for a rich man to not come to Christ because he can build his heaven here on earth. It's very hard for a rich man to think long, long term. He'll think long term. He'll invest his money for when he wants to retire. But it's almost impossible for a rich man to think long, long term because he can create heaven here. You talk talk to a rich man or just someone who has a lot of money doesn't have to be, you know, a millionaire. You talk to someone who has a lot of money about the goodness of heaven. And it's hard for them to think long, long term because they're experiencing a pretty darn good life right here. It's hard for them to turn their back on sin because they have access to sin whenever they want it. Jesus says it is really, really hard for a rich man to come to Christ. It's really hard for him to turn his back on this world because he can have this world whenever he wants it. The startling thing that we see is that according to the rest of this world, we're considered rich. When you look at statistics, the the average income for a person on this planet, not not in Griffin, not in Georgia, but on this planet, we fall into the extremely rich category. And that ought to alarm us because Scripture says it's really hard for a rich man to come to Christ, which means virtually for everyone in here, it was virtually impossible for you to come to Christ. And it it gives us reason to evaluate our salvation to make sure that we have come to Christ, that we have rejected the things of this world. Because Jesus gives some alarming statements here. It's really, really difficult for a rich man to come to Christ. But... The comfort that's offered, and a lot of us have experienced this this fruit of this comfort, is Jesus says what's impossible with man is possible with God. It's possible with God. Now, second question that I give you here in your notes. Does God call all of us to sell our possessions and give them away? Does God call every single person in here to give their possessions away, to sell their possessions? No. No. But there's two errors that we are... We, are possible to make by saying no. Error number one. Error number one is that, obviously, it would be wrong for us to say that Jesus calls all people to sell everything. He doesn't do that. We know from some of the disciples, they still owned houses. They still had possessions. We know that uh, after the crucifixion, when the disciples are kind of dispersed, we see Peter and these guys fishing. Which means they either had a boat still, Or they had money to get a boat. Somehow they were able to go fishing again. They still had nets. They still had the ability to fish. So we know that all the disciples didn't sell everything that they had. So it would be wrong for us to assume that Jesus tells all of us to sell everything. But it would also be wrong for us to say that Jesus never calls people to sell everything. Because he does. He tells this guy to sell everything. And he doesn't chase him down and say, Ah, I was just kidding. I don't actually tell anybody to sell everything. That would be silly. He does tell some people to sell everything. David Platt, I don't think this is originally his quote, but um, he says that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions. So the idea that Jesus doesn't tell everybody to sell their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would command to sell everything. Like some of us here, oh good, God doesn't call everyone to sell their possessions. That usually gives comfort to the type of people that God would tell to sell their possessions and give it away. There's a radical different perspective about money all through the New Testament when you see people come to Christ. We see that in the book of Acts when the early church just begins to sell stuff because other people in the church need stuff. And you don't have a picture of of pastors and elders having to stand up and beg and plead for it. It just seems to be a natural reaction When someone comes to Christ, the tight grip on money is is greatly loosened. And all of a sudden it becomes a, a bank or a resource to give to other people that need it more than we do. Third question I gave you is, do we evangelize by asking people to give up their money and stuff to come to Christ? I don't know that I've actually ever, in witnessing to someone, said, Hey, are you willing to give up everything, including your money, to come to Christ? We'll talk about individual sins. Uh, If you're talking to someone who maybe is is actively having sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend, you might throw in there, you're actually going to have to stop doing that. You need to repent of that specific sin. Most of us probably aren't too quick to call out someone's idolatry of money and say you're going to have to repent of that, and God's most likely going to call you to give a lot of that stuff away. We probably don't normally evangelize like that. We see Jesus using that method of evangelism right here. If you can't let go of money, you can't come to Christ. That's the picture we get with the rich young ruler. Secondly, though, if you truly come to Christ, you let go of money. If you truly come to Christ, you let go of money. Here's what's so cool about the way Luke writes. He paints this impossible picture. If you're rich, you can't come to Christ. The disciples are freaking out. Who can come to Christ? God says what's impossible with man is very possible with God. And we get a a radically different picture in Luke 19.1. Luke 19.1, the story of Zacchaeus, says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. That's an important note by Luke here. Luke is making the point to tell us that this man is rich. If you had never read the book of Luke before, and we were reading it for the first time this morning, as the reader, you would anticipate, here we go again, this guy's going to say no to Jesus because he's rich. We just saw a rich man say no to Jesus. We just heard Jesus say it's impossible virtually for a rich man to come to Christ. Luke says, hey, we're walking through Jericho with Jesus and we come across a rich man. He's a tax collector. Verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So we ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. For me, I'm sad that we don't get the conversation that happens at Zacchaeus' house. I mean, Jesus and Zacchaeus don't walk into the house and Zacchaeus look at Jesus and say, I'm giving everything away. Something happened in the house. There was a conversation that took place, maybe similar to the conversation with the rich young ruler. Something happened. And Zacchaeus responds in faith to Christ. Zacchaeus says, I want to sign up to follow you. And then he makes the statement and says, I'm going to give everything away. We don't have any indication that Jesus asked him to do it. He asked the rich young ruler because Jesus knew the answer was no, because he knew there was idolatry that this guy really hadn't repented of. This guy's saying, I'm, I'm perfectly obedient to the law. There's not any sin in my life whatsoever. Jesus knows their sins, so he calls this guy out and says, you're, you're in bondage to your money. And we see that that's true. The rich, the rich guy walks away. Jesus doesn't have to ask Zacchaeus to give his money away. Zacchaeus says, this is the best thing that I've ever seen. What Jesus is talking about, this, this water that, that makes me not thirst anymore, this promise of a coming kingdom, it's better than anything I've ever experienced. better than anything this money has ever bought me. And we see real salvation happen because he says, I want to give it away. I've, I've earned this money wrongly. I'm going to give it to the poor. People that I've stolen from, I'm going to give four times away to them. I don't know how this works out, but but when you look at it, I don't see how this guy could still be rich after he's done with this. I mean, if he stole money and he's going to give it back four times, it seems like he's, he's moving towards going in debt. I don't know. Like I haven't studied that portion of it that in depth to know what was his financial situation afterwards? But it's obvious he gave a lot of money away. And it's crazy because Jesus sees this response and says, hey, this guy's saved. He says, salvation's come to this guy's house today. He's not looking for tears after, after repeating a prayer. He's not saying, do you really mean it, Zacchaeus? Do you really mean that you want me to be your savior? He just shares the gospel with him. Zacchaeus responds and starts giving his money away. And Jesus is like, oh, this guy's saved. This is is real fruit. He's not clinging to his money. He has every right to. He's a rich man. But things that are impossible with man are possible with God. He gives his money up. He gives his money up. The implication from these two stories is that when Jesus calls people to himself, he calls them to leave money, possessions, and this world behind. He calls them to give up everything. Here's where we make a mistake a lot of times. We will read the New Testament. And we will assign privileges of Christianity to everybody. We'll assign obligations of Christianity to the elite. We see stuff like sell your possessions and give it to people in need. And we say, well, that's best for some people. God caused some people to do that. We see go and make disciples of all nations. And we say, yeah, God does cause some people to do that. We see come, come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And we say, oh, that's for everybody. I mean, that's definitely for me. I need rest. I need, I need hope. I need encouragement. So that, that, that applies to everybody. But the, the, the more hard stuff only applies to people who think that God's calling them to that. We've got to be careful that we don't assign privileges to everybody and obligations to some people. It works both ways. So when we see passages that tell us to abandon our love of money abandon our tight grip on our possessions, that's for everybody. Now, he doesn't call us to give everything away. He doesn't call all of us to do that. I believe he does call some people to do that. But I believe he calls all of us to let go of the grip that we have on our money and what that grip on money used to do for us. And we'll see what it used to do for us in the coming weeks. Real quick, a couple other passages that that we see in Scripture that relate to this. Number one, I must follow Christ the way He commands, not the way I want to follow Him. Anybody, did I give anybody Luke fourteen twenty five? Read through verse 33.
1: Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, "This man began began to build a build and was not able to finish." Or what king going out to encounter another kingdom of war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be much so.
0: This is for everybody. He says, if you're going to come follow me, you got to hate your mother and your dad and your brother and your sister you got to pick up your cross and follow me. If you're not willing to do that, then you're not fit to follow me. And he says, who of you, if you were to build a tower, wouldn't sit down to figure out if you have enough money to build the tower? Who of you that, that were in a war wouldn't figure out how many soldiers does he have, how many do I have, should I go to war with this guy, or should I go ahead and sign a peace treaty with him? He says, we consider the cost before we make big decisions. And it's almost as though Jesus is saying, I'm not looking for everybody to follow me. I'm only looking for the serious ones. So you really think through whether or not you want to follow me or not. Because if you're not ready to do this stuff, then you probably don't need to even start. And we've used the analogy before. It's like when you go to sign up for the Marines. You don't go sign up for the Marines and tell them what you are willing to do and what you're not willing to do. You don't walk in and say, hey, I'm not really interested in going overseas when we're at war. Um, That's not really my thing. I'm more interested in getting my, my school paid for. And I'd like to stay in the southeast, and I'd like to do this, and, and I really don't even like to run, so when you send me to boot camp, don't expect me to show up for the running sessions. No, the recruiter's going to say, this is, what, this is what happens when you join the Marines. You in or you out. Go home, think it over, talk to your parents, come back if you're serious. David Platt said when he was being discipled by this pastor that he showed, they showed up at a, at a guest speaking situation, and the, and the guy stood up and he said, um, my goal tonight is to talk you out of following Jesus. And David Platt was like, what? Like, that's an awful way to start a sermon. But basically this guy kind of walks through the expectations of a disciple. This is what Jesus calls us to. Gave the invitation and, and tons of people came to follow Christ. Jesus lays out the, the cost. He doesn't hide anything. He doesn't try to trick people into getting in and then tell them, hey, uh, they're suffering uh, you're gonna have to give up stuff to follow me. He tells them up front and says, You in or you out because cause it's serious. Secondly, not only do we follow him the way he commands, I must follow Christ over my needs, my desires, even my family. Did I give Luke 957 to anybody? Yeah. Who? You? Yeah. Read 57 through 62.
1: they were going on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you. Boxes have holes and birds of the air have but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, to me, uh, let me first go and bury my Father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those of my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow on his back. Is
0: these seem like reasonable requests. Hey, Jesus, I'm willing to follow you, but I mean, I at least like to know that I'm going to have a place to sleep tonight. Jesus says, I can't even promise you that you'll have a place to sleep tonight with a roof over your head. The other guy says, I'd love, I'd love to follow you, said, but I, I really need to bury my dad. Now, we don't know if this guy's dad has already died and he just needs to make funeral arrangements. Some people believe that maybe his dad was just old in age and it was like, hey, once my dad does die then I'm willing to give up everything and follow you. But Jesus says, either way, Jesus says, uh, let, let other people bury your dad. Let other people bury your dad. And the other guy says, well, can I at least take it bite of my family? And Jesus says, no. No. These seem like reasonable requests. But Jesus identifies all of them and, and the desire behind the request as someone who's not fit to follow him. Someone who's more concerned about family relationships physical daily needs than they are about following Christ I mean that's 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 a tough passage thirdly I must follow Christ by rejecting the temporal future the temporal future did I give anybody Luke 12:15 15 read through21
1: of goods lay up for many years. Relax, eat, and be But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required
0: of you, and the things were prepared, who will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich for himself. Here, here's the example of the passage that, that I was kind of referencing earlier. You've got a guy who's thinking about the future, but just not far enough down the future. This guy... Is, is, is making plans to retire and to retire well. He's thought through his mind. He says, I want to get to this much. If I can save this much, then I can, I, can, I can do whatever I want. I can be married for the rest of my life. I can just live it up for the rest of my life. He can't. His bank account's not big enough to hold all his money, so he has to get more bank accounts. I mean, he's just got a ridiculous amount of money. He's having to build new places to put all his stuff. And Jesus says, you fool. Like, like You're going to die tonight. And none of this is going with you, like we said earlier. And Jesus started off that passage by saying, don't let your possessions define who you are. Don't let your life be about how much you possess. If we're going to follow Christ, we have to reject the temporal future. 2 Timothy 4.10. You get that? Who had that? Anybody? Okay. To this end, we and strive because we have our focus
1: on the God, who is the Savior for all especially, especially Read that one again. For to this end, we toil and strive. Yes, 2nd Timothy.
0: That's a great passage. But I was like, uh, I don't know what I was making there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, for Dinas, in love with this present world, has deserted me beyond this long.
0: Yeah, Demas, the famous guy who was with Paul for a while, and then he said, now nah, I'm going back to the things of this world. He's the picture of the soil where the gospel initially takes root, and it responds, and there's like an, an initial reaction. Yeah, I want to follow Jesus. And then the weeds, the things of this world, choke it out. And Demas says, actually, I think... Uh, the allure of, of the money that I have is better than what Jesus is offering. And he goes back. Demas fails to look long-term future. He can't see the future future. All he sees is the future. Just the, the temporary future. The what's coming in the next 10, 15 years. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If
1: anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of possessions not from the Father but it's from the world. And the world is
0: passing away along with its desires. whoever the will of God will die That's why the temporal future is no good, because we're promised in Scripture it's passing away. This world is passing away. So we don't live for the retirement down the road. We live for the future, future retirement of being in Christ's kingdom that will last forever. We don't live for the temporal future. Instead, lastly here, I must follow Christ by looking to the eternal future. It's the eternal future that we're after. I'll read these passages real quick. Philippians 3, 18-20. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul's expressing again. There were people who were following Christ that aren't following Christ anymore because they love things of this earth. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a way to Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Paul again saying, If you're a Christian, think long term, really long term. Colossians three, two, we're to set our mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Hebrews eleven, thirty-two through forty, um, it's a wonderful passage where we're given the Hall of Faith, what it's commonly called. Um, at the very end, it begins to describe in less recognition who these people are, but it begins to describe the things that they've gone through. Um, I love the, the, the term that it uses for these people. It says, uh, uh, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Refusing to accept release means that these people were in bondage, in jail, because they followed Christ and they were given the option to leave if they did certain things. Most likely deny Christ. And it says they refused to leave so they might rise again to a better life, better than this life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were sewn, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, I love verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. The author of Hebrews says this world is not even worthy to have these type of people walk on it. They're so heavenly minded, they're so in love with Christ, they've turned their back on the things of this world. This world is not even worthy to have their feet on it. It's a beautiful description of what devotion to Christ looks like we got to think long-term, eternal future. Application, the point of my life is to point to Christ so that others see me hoping in Him. First Peter 3.15 says, always be ready to give an account to others about the hope that is in you. And I put on my Facebook this week, how many times do people ask us about the hope that's in us? If they're not asking, it might be because it looks like we're hoping in the exact same things they're hoping in. Does our perspective on money look so radically different than a lost person that it's obvious to a lost person we don't hope in money like the normal person? We hope in something else, and it's worth asking about. Or do we continue to hold tightly to our money, find security in money, to where a lost person wouldn't even think to ask us because we got nothing new to offer because it looks like we hope in the exact same thing. We hope in a fallen economy just like they do. If I have money, I'm supposed to use money in such a way that Jesus is shown to be my treasure, not money. If I don't have money, I'm supposed to use my state of need in such a way that Jesus is shown to be my source of security, not money. Two quotes real quick. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, they have become so effective in this one. That's C.S. Lewis. There was a Romanian pastor that said, In my experience, 95% of the believers who face the test of persecution pass it, while 95% who face the test of prosperity fail it. We have a responsibility to evaluate how we're using our money. We're going to continue to talk about this in the coming weeks. Some questions that I give you to ask yourself as you go home this week, uh, questions that we can talk about next week. These are the type of things that we hope to give you to discuss in small groups during the week. Do people ask me about my hope? Why or why not? Does my life look like I gave anything up? I've been asking myself that this, this this week recently. The New Testament says that to follow Christ means we give up. We give up things. Like we give up stuff. We give up to come follow Christ. Does my life look like I gave anything up? Does my life look radically different than a, than a lost person? Could a, could, a, could a lost person on the outside look in and say, that guy's a Christian? And you can see what he gave up to follow Christ. Have I given anything up to follow Christ? Am I willing to restructure my life, my money, and my possessions for Christ? We're going to be confronted with what Scripture has to say about restructuring our life and our money. We've got to prepare now. We've got to start praying now that the Holy Spirit would make us humble and willing to do what needs to be done based on what Scripture says. I'll give you a passage to consider to take home with you. To read through, we're going to look at this passage next week. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 19. The question to ask, am I seeking to be rich in money or rich in good works? There's a passage there that's really good. It says that, uh, that we're to turn our back basically on money that we think offers us enjoyment. And put our hope in God who gives us everything that we enjoy. God's the source of our enjoyment, not money. Which is why we can turn our back on it Any questions about any of that?